Levi Strauss personified the American dream. He arrived in the U.S. as a poor immigrant, but by the time he died, he'd become a well-respected millionaire and philanthropist. On top of that, he gave the world blue jeans. Learn how it all happened today on Footnoting History. Welcome to Footnoting History. I'm your host, Sam, and I'd like to remind you that all of our episodes are available, fully captioned, on YouTube, and that we welcome support from our viewers via Patreon. For more information, please visit our website at www.footnotinghistory.com. I don't know about you, but I'm a blue jeans kind of girl. I wear them pretty much every day. But I've never really stopped to think about where they came from. So today, I'll be giving you one half of the answer to that question while spinning a tale of the American dream. Our story begins in February 1829 in Butenheim, a small Bavarian town where Hirsch Strauss awaited the arrival of his seventh and final child. Hirsch was a traveling salesman. He was also a Jew, which meant that although his family had been living as traveling salesmen for generations, his sons would not be allowed to participate in that profession. This was because of a new set of laws known as the Judendicht, which had passed in 1813. These laws defined Jews as German citizens, but also imposed many restrictions upon them. Among other things, it limited their professions, required them to keep records in German, mandated that they receive a secular education, and restricted marriage so that henceforth only the eldest son in each family would be allowed to take a wife. While Hirsch was allowed to keep doing his job, his sons would not be allowed to follow in his footsteps. Indeed, Hirsch had several sons. His first wife had provided him with three sons and two daughters, and his second wife, Rebecca, had already had one daughter and was about to give birth to his final child, a healthy boy named Loeb. For the next seven years, all nine members of the Strauss family lived together in a 645-square-foot apartment. Then, in 1837, the oldest two siblings emigrated from Butenheim in search of better prospects. Jacob moved to London and thereby exits our story, and Rosla went to New York City. A few years later, the next brother, Jonathan, changed his name to Jonas and moved to New York, where the third brother, Lipman, who changed his name to Lewis, joined him a year later. The two men settled in the Jewish community in Lower Manhattan, where, under the guidance of Rosla's husband, they took up the familiar trade of peddling. Their brother-in-law would also sponsor Jonas in his effort to become a citizen and signed his naturalization certificate in 1846. Jonas would go on to sign Lewis's papers later that year. In June 1846, Hirsch died and Rebecca married his brother Lipman. When he died, only a few months later, Rebecca decided it was time to move the family to New York. By this time, however, it was illegal to leave the country without the government's permission, so Rebecca had to apply for the right to emigrate. In her case to the government, she argued that she was going to join her older sons who were successfully engaged in business. Once she had proved that she had no outstanding debts and paid a fee to get Loeb excused from his mandated military service, she was allowed to start making arrangements for their departure. When Rebecca, Loeb, Fanny, and Matilda arrived in New York in fall of 1848, they moved in with Jonas and Lewis. 
By this time, the elder brothers had set aside enough funds to open their own storefront and had formed a partnership known as Jonas Strauss and Brother that sold fancy goods, which is to say luxury items like embroidered collars and paper flowers. They had also begun to expand into dry goods, clothes, and foodstuffs. Jonas had also married Sophia Metzger, and the two had started a family. Eventually, they would have ten children. Over the next two years, Loeb started to learn the family business by working for his brothers. In the 1850 census, he is listed as a peddler under the name Levi. According to the census, Levi lived with both of his brothers, his mother, his sister-in-law, one niece, and two nephews, and a servant named Caroline. The two sisters that had traveled with them to New York had married and moved out. This was the first time that we see him listed as Levi, but when he applied for citizenship the following year, he still used the name Loeb. It was very common for immigrants to change their names, selecting new ones that sounded more American, but in Levi's case, the new name seems to have taken a while to really stick. That said, after he moved to San Francisco, Levi Strauss always insisted on being called Levi as opposed to Mr. Strauss. So I have chosen for the remainder of this podcast to refer to him by his first name. In January 1853, Levi gained American citizenship, and then five days later, he boarded a ship bound for Panama. You see, even as Levi Strauss was arriving in the U.S., things were changing. California had been ceded to the United States in 1848, and soon thereafter, gold had been discovered. The California gold rush offered seemingly endless opportunities to get rich, and recent Jewish immigrants were among the first to take advantage of them. For the most part, Jews did not go to California to look for gold. Instead, they sought their fortunes by supplying gold hunters with the goods they needed to survive. Most Jewish migrants to California settled in San Francisco, the most prominent port on the West Coast, where they found not only opportunities for profit, but also a chance to escape the constraints that had been placed on them in New York and to form their own communities. The Strauss brothers heard about the opportunities available in California, and Levi was the perfect person to send to take advantage of them. He had trained with his brothers for the past five years, and as a 24-year-old with no wife or children, he had the energy to make the dangerous journey on behalf of the family. And so he traveled to Panama, hiked across the country, and then caught a ship bound for San Francisco, where he arrived in March of 1853. Levi's main job was to assess the market, tell his brothers what to send him, and then sell it in San Francisco. He probably also attended auctions to obtain additional merchandise for sale. Levi traveled extensively around gold country to strum up the business, but he always maintained a base of operations in San Francisco, and he seems to have been really successful in these endeavors. Even as other merchants were declaring bankruptcy, Levi was able to send his first shipment of gold, valued at $10,041, the equivalent of about a quarter million dollars in today's money, to New York in July of 1855. At the end of the year, he sent an additional $80,000. Levi was doing so well that his brothers felt the need to acknowledge his contribution by renaming their New York-based company, J. Strauss Brother and Company. Levi also became involved in the Jewish communities in San Francisco, and within a month of his arrival, he had joined Temple Emmanuel, one of two temples that had been formed in that city. He would remain a member of Temple Emmanuel for the rest of his life and seems to have been fairly actively engaged in the community it offered. After Levi was settled, his mother and sister Fanny joined him in San Francisco. 
They moved in with him, and Fanny's husband, David Stern, started helping Levi with the business. The West Coast business was becoming so successful that it had soon eclipsed the East Coast branch, and Louis Strauss, also a lifelong bachelor, soon came to join his brother. Although the New York branch of the family business was still called J. Strauss Brother and Company, the West Coast branch has always been Levi Strauss and Company, from its foundation in 1853 through the present day. The years that followed would demonstrate that Levi had good business instincts. He started by expanding the family's trade in dry goods. He worked to expand the company's customer base, and by 1873, he had customers from Victoria to Honolulu. Levi also cultivated a reputation for being very fair and often allowed gold hunters to purchase supplies on credit and was lenient about terms for repayment. Over time, this gained him a reputation as being someone who is good to work with. It would be Levi's reputation for treating his customers fairly and for carrying high-quality goods that would bring him to the attention of Jacob Davis. Like Levi, Davis was a Jewish immigrant to the United States. He had arrived in New York in 1854 and moved to San Francisco by 1856. A tailor by trade, Davis liked to tinker. He was not, however, a particularly good businessman, and he found himself moving around frequently. Eventually, he ended up living in Reno, Nevada. Eventually, he ended up living in Reno, Nevada with his wife and children, and he sold clothes for miners out of a tent. He was also a part owner of a brewery. Sometime around the end of December, 1870, a woman came to Davis to get new trousers for her husband. She paid him $3 in advance and asked him to make pants that would be durable, as her husband was very rough on his clothing. So Davis made pants out of duck fabric, but he also thought about how to make them stronger. He had recently finished making blankets, which he attached to shoulder straps using small metal rivets, and he happened to still have some on his table as he was finishing the work pants. So he decided to use them to fasten the pockets to the trousers. He didn't know it yet, but Jacob Davis had just invented blue jeans. The woman was so pleased with her purchase that she told others about it, and Davis soon had customers asking him to make similar clothing for them. After receiving many requests, Davis realized that there might be some money to be made by producing riveted clothing, but his family was too poor to afford to pay for a patent for the new technology. And so, on July 5, 1872, Jacob Davis sent a letter to his cloth supplier, Levi Strauss and Company, asking them if they would be interested in forming a partnership. Davis asked Strauss to provide $68 for the patent, in return for which he would give half the right to sell any products subject to that patent. Apparently, Levi recognized the money-making potential quickly, because on July 10th, he sent a proposal to Davis offering to pay for the patent and to manufacture the pants according to Davis's design. The profits would be shared between the two men. Davis immediately agreed and offered to come to San Francisco to oversee the manufacturing of riveted clothing. The patent application was sent off to Washington, D.C. on July 29th and formally submitted on August 4, 1872. By August 14th, the patent had been rejected. The examiners argued that because the Army used rivets in their shoes, the use of rivets in pants were not a significantly new innovation. At that point, Levi decided to fight, and he hired patent lawyers to appeal the decision, something that Davis would certainly not have had the resources to do. While the lawyers worked, 
Levi continued his work in the dry goods business, and Davis kept making riveted pants for the workers of Reno, carefully marking each pair with the words patent applied for. In April 1873, Davis, his wife, and his five children relocated to San Francisco with financial aid from Levi. And finally, after multiple rounds of appeals, patent number 139121 for making riveted clothing was conferred to Jacob W. Strauss and Levi Strauss and Company on May 20, 1873. For the next 17 years, the company would have exclusive rights to manufacture clothing with rivets to reinforce the seams. By May, the company was already in a position to start production. Davis was there to supervise the manufacturing of the new garments, and Levi, of course, had all the materials they would need. By June 2nd, the first batch had been completed and were ready to market to the public. Now here is the second benefit that Levi could confer to Davis. Had Davis kept making riveted clothing on his own, even if he had somehow managed to get a patent for them, he would not have had the type of distribution system that Levi already had in place, and it is unlikely that his product would have caught on the way it did. Levi already had connections with stores all over the West Coast, and it was not hard to convince them to start selling the new pants. The company sold the pants at a price of $19.50 per dozen, which meant that by the time they reached consumers, they would have been significantly more expensive than a standard pair of trousers, which cost about 50 cents. But Levi and his salesmen were able to convince customers that paying the extra price was worth it for a much more durable article of clothing. The first few of Levi's batches were probably made by sewers working in their own homes, but soon the company set up its own factory, which employed 50 female sewing machine operators who had to supply their own sewing machines. It also had an unknown number of men who were responsible for hammering in the rivets. By December 1873, the company had managed to sell over 20,000 articles of riveted clothing to working-class men from California to Montana. Over the next decade, Levi's company would continue expanding operations and would even start selling riveted clothing on the East Coast. Here I should note that while I have been focusing on blue jeans, the company also made other types of clothing reinforced by rivets. They actually had a second patent issued in 1875 to expand their right, and they sold many items, including jackets, jumpers, hunting coats, and vests. But their most important product were their overalls. Wait. Did I just say overalls? Yes, I did. Because the pants they made were not called blue jeans. They were called overalls. But they looked remarkably similar to modern blue jeans, and nothing at all like the overalls I used to wear in the mid-90s. These overalls were made with either white duck cloth or high-quality indigo-dyed jean that Levi imported from a mill in New Hampshire. They were sewn together with orange thread. The original overalls had two full-sized pockets in the front, a small pocket on the front right for coins and watches, one pocket on the back right. They also had a two-pronged metal piece sewn into a strap that allowed the wearer to tighten or loosen his pants, and six suspender buttons along the waistline. The pants were held together with the aid of 11 copper rivets, which were stamped with the letters LSSF, or Levi Strauss San Francisco. The overalls also had a leather patch sewn along the right-hand side of the back waistline with the company's name and address, and a note that they were the sole proprietors of patented riveted duck and denim clothing. And indeed, Levi Strauss and Company was vigilant about enforcing its patent rights. They pursued at least eight patent infringement suits 
between 1874 and 1878. The first of these lawsuits was against A.B. Elfelt and Company. The irony here was that Elfelt was a member of Levi's synagogue and a personal friend. When Elfelt agreed to stop selling riveted clothing and subsequently lost his day in court, Levi quietly paid his rival's legal fees. It appears that while Levi needed to make an example of anyone who would infringe on his rights, he was not out to harm his friends. The company was less generous with their other rivals. The company had a hiccup in 1876 when the San Francisco Daily Morning Call published an article naming and condemning the factories that employed Chinese labor and included Levi Strauss and Company on that list. This list was printed at a time when the reduction of work on railways was sending Chinese migrants who had worked on them back to cities to look for jobs. In turn, the residents of San Francisco and of other big cities blamed the Chinese for taking jobs and increasing white unemployment. People were angry, and they were ready to boycott any company that used Chinese labor. So getting included on this list was a big deal, and the company went to the papers the next day to refute the claim and to argue that it only had one Chinese person working for it. After that, the company began to include in their advertising material the fact that their products were made by whites. There is no way to know what Levi's personal feelings were towards Chinese people. He certainly did not hesitate to sell them his products, and he even signed a letter to Congress in 1902 asking them not to extend the Chinese Exclusion Act. At the same time, however, he was happy to pay two to four times as much to employ white labor as opposed to Chinese labor and proudly advertised that fact. Was this purely a business decision or is it an indication of a deeper layer of racism? We'll never know. Over the next few years, the company began to experiment with its designs and created a pair of workman's pants that were a step up from the one they were already manufacturing and another pair that was somewhat cheaper and used a less durable jean material to accommodate the varied needs of their customers. In 1886, they also redesigned the leather patch on their overalls to include an image of two horses attached to either side of a pair of riveted pants trying to tear them apart. The two-horse design was registered as a trademark and is still used by the company to this day. The new trademark, which was released five years before the patent would expire, was probably intended to help ensure customer loyalty once competitors started producing their own pantaloons. It would be easily recognizable and would serve as evidence of the quality of the pants to which they were attached. Within a year, the two-horse design was being stamped onto the back of every envelope sent out by the company, and flyers with the two-horse design and with their message, it's no use, they can't be ripped, were being distributed widely. The company worked hard to keep marketing their jeans when the patent expired. In addition to the trademark, they included a guarantee ticket sewn into the back right pocket of the overalls. They also distributed a gift with purchase, which could be a calendar or a collectible trading card, which featured their two-horse design. They also released various advertisements, the most notable of which shows a man in jeans climbing a fence to get away from a barking dog. The face of the man is a caricature of Levi, whose personal fame could help sell the product even though he never wore them himself. In everything that he did, Levi was supported by strong family ties. Except for the first three years he was in San Francisco, Levi always lived with some members of his family, which usually included his full sister Fanny until her death in 1884, and Fanny's eight children, who were treated as his own. 
When Levi died, it would be Fanny's four sons who inherited the company, and all of his nieces and nephews received significant share of his fortunes, as did Philip Fisher, his bookkeeper. In addition to the support of his family, Levi's success owed a lot to the economic health of San Francisco. Levi certainly recognized that fact, and his philanthropic work consistently demonstrated concern with the vitality of the San Francisco community. He was especially concerned with the welfare of children and directed significant monetary support to the Pacific Hebrews Orphan Asylum, as well as orphanages run by Protestant and Catholic charities in the San Francisco area. He also served on the board for the Society of the Prevention of Cruelty to Children and helped raise funds for local kindergartens to ensure that every San Francisco resident would have access to a free education. In his later days, Levi served on several boards associated with the University of California and endowed the Levi Strauss Scholarship of the University of California, Berkeley, which to this day supports diligent students who would not otherwise be able to afford a university education. In the first year of its existence, the scholarship supported 28 students, 11 of whom were women. Aside from his consistent support for children, Levi tended to support causes that ensured the social and economic health of the city of San Francisco, and especially the Jewish community within it. He contributed significant money to the Eureka Benevolent Association, which was devoted to supporting Jewish families that fell upon hard times. He also served on the board for the Emmanuel Sisterhood, which sent Jewish women into poor neighborhoods to try to lift Jews who had fallen onto hard times out of poverty. He also served on committees dedicated to cleaning up and beautifying the city, and contributed significant funds to charities for the families of police officers and firemen killed in the line of duty. Indeed, over the course of his life, Levi Strauss displayed significant concern with promoting the physical safety of the city he loved. Only a few years after he arrived in San Francisco, he participated in the Committee of Vigilance, which was a response to high levels of crime in the city, and used a force of 60,000 local men to help patrol the city streets until the situation was in hand. All of these efforts were aimed at helping support the business community, and Levi was always a leading member of that community. He served as the first treasurer on the Board of Trade of San Francisco in 1877 and was so well respected by that institution that when he died in September of 1902 at the age of 73, the board passed a resolution that all San Francisco-based businesses would close on the day of his funeral to honor his memory. And that pretty much brings me to the end of the story of Levi Strauss. Levi died at home in his sleep on September 6, 1902, surrounded by his loving family. While he never did marry, which is perhaps a bit of a mystery given the cultural emphasis on marriage, he was never alone, and he certainly left his mark. While he was recognized at the time of his death as a merchant prince and philanthropist, he is better remembered today for popularizing blue jeans, for which his name has become synonymous, and that his company continues to make to this day. As for Jacob Davis, he continued to work for Levi Strauss and Company until he retired in 1906. His son Simon continued to work for the company into the 1920s when he left to do his own thing. And in 1935, he founded his own clothing company, Ben Davis Clothing, which is still around today. This has been Footnoting History. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And if you did, you can learn more about us at www.footnotinghistory.com or follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Please join us for another episode soon. <laughs>